Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Now we say we don't understand how galaxies are born. Let's make a telescope to help us. So we design and build this telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope. Astrophysicist and television host Neil deGrasse Tyson was excited by what the James Webb Space Telescope might tell us about the deep past of the universe, such as the birth of the first galaxies bringing an end to the cosmic dark ages a billion years after the Big Bang. Scientists got more than they bargained for. And oh my gosh, who ordered this? We're finding galaxies in the dark ages. We had no idea, no idea. And I'm told the lead researcher was so shocked by this, he spit out his coffee when he realized what kind of data he had on his hands. That surprising revelation threw into question what we thought we knew about the origins of the universe. A huge deal for astrophysics. But what do the events of 13 billion years ago, give or take, have to do with us today? An earlier astrophysicist and television host, Carl Sagan, had an answer for that. The lives and deaths of the stars seem impossibly remote from human experience, and yet we're related in the most intimate way to their life cycles. The very matter that makes us up was generated long ago and far away in red giant stars. We're made of star stuff. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. So who we are and where we come from matters when we study the universe or just find wonder in it. Who and what's excluded from studying it, that matters too. In this episode, two interviews with scientists who think a lot about how identity and social and historical context shape what we know and how we know it, and how even the most mind-bending science is also the story of us. The interviews are drawn from the Conversations at the Perimeter series produced by the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Waterloo, Ontario. First, Shohini Ghosh, a professor of quantum science at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo and former president of the Canadian Association of Physicists. What really lights her up are the very things that most people find confounding and unintelligible in the bizarre laws of quantum physics such as the uncertainty principle, the impossibility of knowing everything about a subatomic particle like an electron or photon. That's where Shohini Ghosh's conversation with the Perimeter Institute's Lauren Hayward and Colin Hunter begins. 
I have a broad range of interests, I would say, but I guess the thing that perhaps ties it all together is I'm a big fan of uncertainty. I'm more interested in what we don't know than what we do know, which in a way is kind of like being right at that boundary of what we call research, which is all, if you think about it, no matter what area you're in, it's about pushing that boundary. So within that very broad umbrella of what do we not know is a lot of stuff. In fact, most things we don't know, I think. And in physics, that obviously leads you know, naturally into quantum for me, where, of course, not knowing has an entirely different meaning, where the idea of uncertainty is baked into the theory itself. So that took me to a whole new level when I started out, exploring this idea of uncertainty and not knowing and, and knowledge in general and how we describe the universe. But that, of course, also extends to questions of uncertainty about, about who we are and questions around identity and society. And all of that is, of course, very, very much intermingled. So for me, I guess quantum has really taught me deeply that there is power to uncertainty, that the universe itself is telling us, stop with all of this precision measurements and, you know, stop with trying to know it all. <laughs> the universe is saying, yeah, let's not be know-it-alls. And that's not a bad thing in the sense that we now, of course, have started harnessing quantum uncertainty and all of these weird quantum properties that we largely ignored since the beginning of the theory and realizing that these are knobs and they are powerful tools that we can use to not only do uh, information processing, which is, of course, the field of quantum computing, but also to dig deeper into what the universe really is, what, what exists, what doesn't. That, to me, really blows my mind to think about that. We actually have tools to even ask those questions, let alone answer them. For someone who loves uncertainty, it seems like quantum is the perfect field for you to be in. I, right? In your TED Talk, you said something that made the audience laugh. We do not experience this fluid quantum reality in our everyday lives. So if you are confused by quantum, don't worry, you're getting it. Can you elaborate on what you meant by don't worry about the weirdness because it's sort of inherent to this field? I think there's, of course, other much more famous, smarter people have said that and pointed out that you shouldn't be avoiding quantum uncertainty. If you're confused by quantum, join the club. But more in a, oh, you know, we're stuck with it kind of way, just shut up and calculate approach. But for me, I wanted to flip it and say, no, that's, that's exciting. It's exciting to know that we cannot ignore all of this fluid universe that we live in, and perhaps we should embrace it. So the theory is essentially what we call a probabilistic theory, meaning the fundamental description of any quantum particle, whether it's electrons or photons or any of these particles that we don't even see, is that we cannot actually know every quantity precisely. So if we wanted to know where it's going, then we don't know where it's located or vice versa. And it doesn't matter how well we try to measure, we just can't. That's really what it means to be fundamentally unknowable. All we can do is talk about the likelihood of all of these different properties. And that's only the case in the quantum realm? That's not the case in our sort of day-to-day -day existence? You know, ultimately, we are made up of quantum particles, right. electrons being, and then atoms and so on. So we're up the chain. And mm -hmm. at some point, it seems like we do seem to know more precisely where we are and what we're doing to some extent. I mean, we even make GPS instruments to tell us these things and our phones tell us even these days. So the fundamental question is, why is it that at the quantum level, that idea of uncertainty plays a much bigger role? It's not that we don't have 
uncertainty at our scale. It's just the scale is different. So at our macro scale, somehow quantum uncertainty doesn't seem to play a role. And at the quantum level, if we have just these isolated particles that are not talking to the rest of the universe and we can sort of observe them and play with them, then we start seeing that these effects are big on that scale. So that's really what's happening. I work in quantum matter, and I think the goal of explaining quantum entanglement is something we have in common. And I have to say, I always have a really hard time explaining it to someone outside of the field. Do you have a good way of explaining it to someone that's new to the concept? I have some way, but this is why I cleverly said, well, if you're confused, that's fine, because then I have a way out of being too You're hedging clear. your bets a little. Right? Yeah. But what's really amazing, and the part that's different from regular connection, for example, you can think about connection as some kind of pairing, right? For example, a left glove and right glove, that's paired, or a knife and a fork. Those things are not surprising entanglement. We don't call them entangled cutlery. Because actually they're not. (laughs) Well, I will from now on. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. But there is something extra about the way that connection, the pairing works at the quantum level of electrons or photons and so on. And that is that not only is there this pairing of, let's say, going back to cutlery, if one of the electrons is like a knife, the other one's a fork, sure. But what's interesting is that both of them already at the individual level have that uncertain fluid identity. So it's not clear which one is a knife, which one is a fork. In fact, they have this sort of possibility of being knife or fork, but we don't know for sure. So it's this combination where we don't know which is the knife and which is the fork, but if one is a knife, the other one's instantly a fork, no matter where they are on opposite ends of the universe. Mm -hmm. So it's that balance between having that probabilistic fluid identity combined with perfect connection and pairing. You wrote a really nice article for Morals and Machines, and I guess the theme was kind of how quantum can help us go beyond the binary. So what are some of the ways that we can learn about non-binary thinking inspired by quantum mechanics? Well, everything in quantum mechanics is about letting go of specifics and precision. The idea that science and the way we think about science can impact society is not new. As our science evolves, our social thinking also evolves. And for example, all of you know the industrial revolution and thinking around precisions and mass marketing and scales of how we think about things, as well as knowing exactly one thing or another, that has all absolutely shaped the way we behave socially as well. So it, to me, it feels like whether we like it or not, this whole new revolution with new quantum technologies that actually harness these stranger properties of quantum, we're already using quantum technologies, of course the laser and electronics, all of that is based on quantum ideas. But now we're getting to the parts that we were kind of ignoring, like the uncertainty and entanglement. Perhaps in society too, we will naturally start expanding our choices from right and wrong to a more broader spectrum and not just right or wrong, yes, no, or anytime we try to have this sort of polar opposite kind of thinking. I think perhaps that will start evolving and we will get to newer ways and newer approaches which can influence so many aspects of our behavior, whether we're choosing what we want to eat at a restaurant versus our politics and our policies and, you know, so many, many aspects of our identities that honestly we are learning more and more are not about just one or the other. We are the intersection of so many different environments and influences and our own human characteristics. Think about it that way. It feels narrow that we've not really embraced that 
kind of thinking already. So I think, yeah, for me, that's the revolution. Mm -hmm. And maybe it will eventually lead to a bigger revolution that I think of as a social revolution, because technologies always end up going in ways that we definitely can't control, which is a little scary. But it always changes everything. So you would call this a quantum social revolution? I think it will be. The question is what kind of social revolution? One that can be perhaps we engage in it in a more knowing way where we understand in the history of science and technology, the way society develops hand in hand with technology gives us a lot of ways to learn how we could perhaps shape this next revolution rather than just get caught up in the flow. We will be anyway. But what if we could actually choose to be more structured and more, for example, deliberate and inclusive in the way we embrace and use these technologies, who has access to these technologies, that would be kind of a revolutionary approach to a technology revolution, Mm -hmm. which will then lead to a completely radical social revolution. Mm -hmm. Can you think of examples of how we could, in the field of quantum computing, develop the field in a way that's more inclusive and, and sort of egalitarian than, let's say, an older branch of science like chemistry? Sure, absolutely. Often what we do with technology, especially on the science side, and I'm sure we've all been guilty of it, is that we're so curious. We're like, let's just try it and see what happens. What if we did this? What if we tweak this now? Which is fun because we are inherently curious, which is wonderful. But what if we could ask the what if questions and also include those who ask what will happen next? Because that too is a creative process because we can't quite predict it until it happens. And and humans are very unpredictable. <laughs> so maybe we learn more about how to predict human behavior too in the future. But for now, there are experts who will understand human behavior, perhaps just the way I study physics and the laws of physics. There's, you know, others who study social sciences and things like, you know, identity and, and inclusion. And often me as a physicist would perhaps not think they should be Part of whatever is the research project I'm doing to build this new quantum application to do something with healthcare or so on. But healthcare would impact humans. So perhaps we should get some human experts into that kind of research and development. So that's one example of where we could be more deliberate. As we develop the technology, we don't have to limit what we do, but we should ask, what's the impact? Who's using it? Why are we doing this? Where will it lead? What's the environmental kinds of concerns we have? Is it sustainable? There's so many other questions that we Mm -hmm. don't typically ask all at the same time. The Industrial Revolution, we know that it essentially built the 20th century and and into the 21st century, but it it had some serious repercussions for our environment and for our health. Some good, lots bad. Are you sort of proposing that quantum information is a field that's so young that it would kind of be like going back to the start of the Industrial Revolution and saying, you know, we could plan ahead a little bit better and have fewer of the negative repercussions. Do we have the wisdom of hindsight now with a new revolution that's starting? That's exactly the kind of what-if game that would be great to play. What if we could go back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and make a few decisions, key decisions, knowing everything we know now? What would we have done different? And from that kind of an exercise, can we learn something about starting this new revolution and ask, What if we use those kinds of lessons to try to put into place whatever are those key decisions and policies? It would require, obviously, some kind of ability to predict where we're going. And we'll never get that right because there's just no way. But history does have some guidance for us. Exactly. Right now, our approach is we don't even look back at history. We know (laughs) industrial revolution happened, but that's about it. We don't really take it as a lesson that we now use for the future. There are, as I said, expert scholars who do actually 
think about history, think about political science and their causalities and correlations. So I think it's happening, but we don't necessarily then include that as we roll out the technologies. It's all being done in silos, which has always been kind of a problem with research. So here's a chance for us to break those silos. In this conversation, we've been using the word identity many times, but it seems like this is a pretty fundamental word to a lot of the things that you're thinking about. Can you tell us a little bit more about identity and why you think it's so important to be considering? It's something that's central in to the physical world that we interact and to our social spaces and just more broadly everywhere. Whatever we do, it's about how we interact with whether it's other human beings or with other objects or even our imaginations and even things that are not there, that don't exist. Everything is about that interaction and then engagement. And that has everything to do with who we are and what shapes us. So to me, it is really an important piece that connects many of the projects that I work on personally, where other than physics, I do think a lot about who I am too as a person, because whenever we meet new people and we introduce ourselves, we have, we say, hi, my name is so-and-so and I am such and such, right? And who am I, right? For one thing, the fact that am is the key word is already interesting. Instead of telling people what I do or what I love or what I'm interested in, we always lead with the, this is what I am, which honestly seems like, again, one of these very known concepts where somehow I'm supposed to already know that. I am. There is no room for uncertainty there. I am such and such. It's built in, this idea of knowing everything. So questioning that automatically means questioning not just my own identity, but what does society mean about who I am and, you know, whether I'm a physicist or let's say I'm, I'm an immigrant to Canada or a woman or a certain age or I have, I have a certain abilities, whether I'm healthy or There's so many things, I can't even think about all the different identities we have. So to me, it's important to explore that and it can't really be separated out and say, okay, here I do physics here and then I think about identity here. To me, they must connect and they always do. It's interesting because I, I think a traditional look at science would say uh, there's there's the science in one compartment of your life and then there's the rest, the, the personal stuff. And at what point in your life or career did you realize that they're not separate domains, that they're intermingled like that and evolving over time? I started absolutely traditionally, as you described, as in thinking about everything very separately and you know, when I was a grad student in physics, and I've talked about this often, where I did notice that it was kind of lonely because there weren't that many women in the room and there were certainly not many people of color. I'd, but back then I thought, okay, who cares? That's not relevant. I'm in a physics classroom. I'm doing physics work. So if I do great physics, nothing else is relevant. And it took a long time for me to eventually realize that it's not just about whether I do good physics or not, because it's not who I am and how I'm perceived does matter. And it's not necessarily always even a level playing field in terms of how your work is perceived or not. So even if I do great work, perhaps, you know, it won't really get acknowledged depending on who we are and who's there and the fact that there are few women and there's challenges, absolutely systemic barriers and challenges and biases that we all have that impact how we can do our physics or whatever other area that we're talking about. And all of these identity questions, I'm not an expert on any of that. And all universities do exactly what you describe, which is separate out. Okay, you you go into the arts degree or the science degree, everything is very separate. So I didn't know students who were able to discuss these kinds of questions 
and we are told to ignore it. It took a while to break out and realize, well, maybe I should go find others who know more about this, which, you know, it didn't happen until my early days as a junior faculty member that I got mm -hmm. to interact with other researchers from other faculties who were in psychology, social science, gender studies, and that really opened my eyes. And I realized, yes, there's research, there's expertise, I can understand more about these kinds of questions of context. And it went from there to eventually realizing I have to deprogram myself and try to think more holistically. Loneliness and isolation can be two of the biggest factors that make us stop following our dreams and our goals. And in science, for sure, that happens a lot when you don't see others like you. My message is that, in fact, you are not alone. It's not you. It's mm -hmm. just that we have to do better and build that inclusive community that I keep talking about. So we have designed and implemented some interesting new protocols, such as um, teleportation among different users in the network, and efficient data transmission, and even secure voting. So it's a lot of fun for me being a quantum physicist. I highly recommend it. Where is the, the fun in what seems like really difficult math, and there's coding, and there's experiments, and the line about recommending it. Do you recommend it to anyone or is it, does it take a certain type of person to want to dive into this certain type of fun? Well, I think there's one common fundamental requirement if you want to do quantum. That's you got to be curious and you have to be okay with not knowing everything. As in, you have to be okay with being right at the edge and being frustrated often because our limited minds where we keep seeking intuition, <laughs> it really isn't there. And this is why it's important to find that area, whether it's quantum or something else, find the area that you know where you want to go with it. What's the purpose? Why did you choose that field? Because then when it gets hard and you fail, which you will often in almost every field, certainly quantum, you're going to have that energy to get up again because you know what your passion is. So that's why people talk a lot about passion because passion is what makes you get over failure. You've hit dead ends and had failures. Oh, and yeah. It happens a lot. So More than success? Yeah. We, are, we write all of our papers and do the presentations and talks about these you know, rare moments of success, like watching those movies. We don't write about the six years of movie after movie where all you see is darkness. Yep. <laughs> Imagine papers <laughs> like that. <laughs> I feel like we should have that. The Journal of Failed Experiments. Oh, that would be great. It also can be inspiring to see how long it actually takes to see the success. I think so. At least we should do a summary. In every talk, we should have one, one slide of this is everything that we went through and this was a level of pain. We should have a little <laughs> a bar, scale. right? A scale. <laughs> <laughs> was. Every, everybody's scale would max out, I think. And Shohini, in addition to being a professor in working in the, this quantum research, you're also the director of the Laurier Center for Women in Science. Can you tell us a little bit about this center and what the goals are for it? So this center, again, arose from this evolution in my own personal journey where I realized that to really be uh, engaged in good science, I have to also engage in, in understanding my own identity, the context of science and things like this. So the center is unique in that we wanted to bring together scientists like me, and not just in physics, but in all of the natural sciences, with social scientists mm -hmm. who did think about questions like gender identity. And, and it was about bringing those two pieces that were usually siloed together and getting new conversations started and then developing scholarship-based initiatives 
to try to be more inclusive and find out what the problems are and then address them going forward. Turns out girls are quite interested in science. And then there's all, all the math camps who try to make girls better at math. But girls actually are out more performing boys at math. And we're still having math camps for girls. So what we found is that the initiatives are often not aligned with what is a real problem. Similarly with things like mentoring, you know, women are over-mentored, to be honest, right now, because mm-hmm. it's all about let's help and support them somehow. It's not that that's what's missing. It's about no amount of mentoring will help if already there's a totally skewed sort of system where there's no way for a, a woman to climb beyond a certain point. So there are all kinds of systemic barriers and biases that are not being focused on. On the other hand, all the initiatives were more about fixing the women rather than (laughs) fixing the system. So our big motto became fix the system, not the women. (laughs) (laughs) We are doing mentoring, but framing it as something that's really about adapting to a system that is flawed. And this problem of building a culture of change, I think it can sometimes feel very overwhelming. And are there any small things that any theoretical physicist could implement to make academic environments a little bit more inclusive? So many. (laughs) Where to start? (laughs) For example, if you were to open any physics textbook today and look for (laughs) names of physicists, you'd find Newton and Einstein (laughs) and perhaps Bohr and Maxwell you will never find a single woman's name. Not even Marie Curie is actually included in physics textbooks, perhaps in chemistry textbooks, but not physics. So there are zero names. So that's one thing that as an educator, if you happen to be teaching a course, if you look at the topic you're teaching and do a little bit of digging, it'll be amazing how many women have contributed who are not being mentioned at all. And there's so much inspiration to be had in their stories because typically they did it, you know, while they were facing many challenges and biases. As a researcher, one thing that I've been doing in my own papers is there's always an acknowledgement section that we put in where we thank people who are involved in it. And I put in a land acknowledgement. So that is documented that we are on this land of indigenous peoples. So I think that's something we could all do. Imagine how many research papers are submitted and published every single day. Imagine if we all did that. Well, this seems like maybe a good time to mention the book that you're working on. Can you tell us about that project? Yes. So my own effort to exactly do, do my part to tell these stories about all the women who have been ignored is to write about them. Not just the science they did, but also the context and the fact that a lot of their experiences are still relevant today. Could you maybe tell us about one particular woman that you learned about in this process that maybe you didn't know much about and just a a story that really resonated with you? Being born and raised in India when I was a student, I had never heard about this woman, even until quite late in my own career. And her name is Bibha Chaudhary. And it's amazing to me because she's actually Bengali like I am. And she has this incredible story because she was born and raised and did most of her work while India was still a colony. In that context, she got a PhD in physics, worked with two different Nobel Prize winners, was involved in the discovery of two different fundamental particles in nature, never got acknowledgement for any of it. But she published like four different articles in nature itself, you know, the Mm -hmm. the journal, which is unheard of even today to have that many. And she just published them back to back. (laughs) I know. She was really an incredible person. And it somehow didn't seem to bother her that you know, she didn't get the kind of acknowledgement and recognition that others were getting that well, for work that she herself was doing. So, and that was, of course, a very 
common thing, unfortunately. But that combined with the context of India under British rule and lack of funding, lack of support, lack of infrastructure, and yet there she was discovering everything about the universe. And all the women have these kinds of huge stories. We're not talking about small discoveries. Discoveries at that level that just don't celebrate, which doesn't make sense. Imagine being a, a little girl growing up in India and not knowing this woman's name. Mind-boggling. Shohini Ghosh is a quantum physicist at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. Her forthcoming book, Her Time, Her Space, How Trailblazing Women Scientists Decoded the Universe, will be published this fall. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Ideas is a broadcast and a podcast, available on your favorite podcast app and the CBC Listen app. And you can find hundreds of past episodes of Ideas on the Listen app and on our website. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. While Shohini Ghosh studies the very smallest things in the universe, Hilding Nielsen's gaze is focused on some of the biggest things in the cosmos and some of the biggest questions. His imagination was captured by the stars he saw in the night sky growing up in Newfoundland. He's now an astronomer at Memorial University in St. John's, and he brings his Mi'kmaq heritage to bear on his work, bridging the vanguard of astronomical research and traditional Indigenous astronomy. The Perimeter Institute's Lauren Hayward and Colin Hunter began their conversations with Hilding Nielsen by asking about his fascination with stars far more massive than the sun, such as Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is this great red supergiant star that sits on Orion and it's so beautiful when you see it on the night sky. But for most astronomers, all we're waiting for is for the thing to explode. We know it's going to explode soon. Relatively soon, I assume. Not tomorrow, within, necessarily. Probably not tomorrow, but within 100,000 years-ish. Relatively soon. Yeah. <laughs> but is there a, do you have any idea of when in those 100,000 years, or it's just any time? <laughs> I have lots of ideas. They're all, none of them are really that good or any better than any others. But we know it's getting close. We know that pretty much every star that's more massive than eight times the mass of our sun will end up exploding as a supernova. And this has to do with how stars form elements in their core. Stars like our sun generates energy to give us our light from taking two hydrogen atoms, banging them together to, get, to eventually create helium. And that gives off a little bit of energy that turns into photons that eventually reach, reach us. But more massive stars, when, you know, when the core runs out of hydrogen, they're able to fuse helium, they're able to fuse carbon and oxygen, and so on until you reach our iron. When iron tries to fuse, it's a problem because it takes energy away from the star as opposed to creating energy. So when that happens, there's no way for the star to support itself anymore. It collapses onto itself creating perhaps a neutron star or a black hole, and then a shockwave creates the explosion. 
And because we know Betelgeuse is much more massive than eight solar masses or eight times the mass of the sun, we can be fairly certain that it's going to explode eventually. And because we know it's cool, it's only about 3,000, 3,500 degrees Celsius, and the amount of light it emits, we can guess that it's very well beyond fusing hydrogen. It's probably burning helium or maybe burning carbon, but it's getting very much closer. And by the time it gets to like oxygen, it's only, only last a year burning oxygen or a few tens of years. And so we know it's getting close, but we don't know enough precisely about the star to be able to say exactly when. If the explosion is bright enough, we might even see it during the day, which has happened historically where you can actually, you could see light from supernova during the day. It's in that nice place where it's, gonna, it's just going to be in a very nice light show. You wrote, I think on your website, by better knowing stars, we can better know the planets they host. So, you know, we were talking about exoplanets, and I know that a more even specific question we could look at is how many planets out there might host intelligent life. And I know the Drake equation is something we might look at to help us predict that. So can you talk about this Drake equation and some of the different insights you have on that? So the Drake equation is this great historical thought experiment by Frank Drake. Not that Drake that, we want, that we're all thinking about. This was in the advent of radio astronomy when it was being born. We're building telescopes. We're broadcasting TV signals out in the space. And he's kind of thinking, well, if we use radio for communication and we can broadcast radio in space, how many civilizations could we like fire a signal to and they can fire a signal back and we have a conversation with? And so he broke this down into parts like a nesting doll where he's like, well, how many stars are there in a galaxy? How many stars can host planets? How many of those stars that have planets could have planets where that could potentially support life. And if they could potentially support life, then how many go on to support life? And then how many have intelligent life? How many of those go on to form civilizations with technologies capable of communication? And the final term, part of the, that discussion was, well, if they go on to have these uh, civilizations that can communicate, how long do they last? And you know, this was the height of the Cold War. So when they were thinking about how long they would last, it was more along the lines of how long would it take before they blow themselves up? Today, we might talk about it. How long will it take before, you know, we mess things up enough with climate change. And so asking how many stars could have planets, well, we only knew at the time only one star with planets. We only knew one star that had life. You know, and so the numbers were very small. And he was thinking five, ten kind of civilizations throughout our galaxy. Today, well, we know that planets are actually fairly common. About 20% of stars have planets. But we still only know of one planet with life. We still only know of one planet with intelligent life. I'm sure there are people who listening to this who may question even that assumption. And we only know of one planet with possibly having a civilization, and we don't know how long that civilization will last. Frank Drake's whole idea is built on this premise that civilization and intelligent life being human and being human in this technological world that was you know, the 1950s U.S. or 1950s Canada. And so it was very much based on this very Eurocentric, Amerocentric kind of perspective. I think today we can actually broaden this out because we live in Canada. Canada is indigenous lands. Indigenous people have been here since time immemorial, whether it's Mississaugas or Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, and so on. And they were civilization. And when we talk about intelligent life, well, humans might not be the only intelligent life. There may be other paths to intelligence. We talk about intelligent life being used in tools. Well, we know crows and whales and, and monkeys all use tools. We talk about intelligent life through emotions and self-awareness. Well, we know that of killer whales who carry their dead children along with them. They're who mourn. We know that dolphins can laugh. And so self-awareness seems pretty common. So our definitions kind of have to broaden. And even the definition of what is life from many indigenous perspectives can be very important and very crucial to think about because we tend to think of, NASA tends to define life by something that you know, consumes material and reproduces and various other things. But no matter how well NASA defines uh, life, there's always an exception. Like a virus doesn't reproduce without a host. Self-replicating robots aren't necessarily self-aware. 
but they replicate. But for many indigenous peoples, life comes from relationships. Being in relationships with the salmon, the bear, the elk, so on, that's part of being alive. Where I'm from in Mi'kmaq, you know, with the Mi'kmaq people, we're connected to the bear very much as part of our cosmology or connected to the, the cod and lobster and the other fish as part of our ways of living. Being a life form is part of being in that relationship. In that respect, maybe life goes beyond carbon-based and becomes something more broadly defined. To be honest, we still haven't actually found a planet where we can actually safely assume that it's very much like Earth. When we say we find an Earth-like planet, what we're saying is we're finding a planet that's roughly the same size and radius as a sphere as the Earth. That doesn't mean it's not made of a diamond or is a ball of gas or something else. So if we're just looking for a planet that's like ours in as many ways as possible, we're going to miss a lot of things out there. But, And I guess I'm just wondering if you can... If maybe there's other examples where kind of changing that way of thinking could could help us scientifically. I think with the search of life in our solar system, we tend to focus on Mars and Venus because they're in the habitable zone where we're just the right distance from the sun where we know that water can exist as a liquid and a solid and, and a gas. But probably the best place to find life in our solar system outside the Earth is around the moons of Jupiter. We know those moons like Ganymede, it's solid core, an ice shell, that seems like a very good spot to find life because it has all the ingredients with ways of mixing minerals in the water, so therefore it may be forming DNA. And I think that's actually the better place to search for life. Like Mars might have life, but it's going to be hard to find. But I imagine if we can go to Europa and Ganymede, we could probably go ice fishing and find life. If we do discover life on another planet, then we have to reevaluate our own place in, mm-hmm. in the world and in the galaxy. If we find microbial life on Mars or some sort of fish life on Europa, then we have to sort of rethink all these different things about our understanding of the universe and our place into it and our relationships with it. Because it's very much a problematic. We're currently in a world where we're slowly burning it up with fossil fuels, where we got rich people sending rockets into space all the time on some sort of weird, rich competition. I think it's the relationships that, that between our solar system and us and our as a society and as a species is very valuable as part of our makeup. So I think it's also about understanding us. I'm really curious to follow up on what you were saying about space exploration, because it seems like this is an area that's just going to continue growing. One of the big issues right now with space exploration is that it's very much dominated by a few people. And to be honest, those people are more privileged. They're white. They're almost entirely men. There's a very certain power dynamic in play here. There's a lot of voices in the discussion of space exploration and settlements that aren't there. And this is a problem because we all see the night sky. It's part of everyone's being. Indigenous peoples, peoples from other countries share the night sky. And we all have a relationship with it, whether it's our stories, stories of the moon and the stars, whether it's our use for navigation. Having all these satellites, particularly low-Earth orbit satellites that you can see with the unaided eye in dark spots, or the idea of mining on the moon, these are all being dictated by people with certain levels of power. So right now, the, my biggest concern with space exploration is, is being dictated by people with bigger wallets, as opposed mm-hmm. to people with more wisdom. Another place where I know I've heard you refer to these power dynamics is within a term that I think you refer to as astrocolonialism. Can you also talk about what that is? When we talk about astronomy and, si- and space science and space, you know, we, we, talk about, we have all these kind of knowledges and understanding, and we talk about them in terms of a certain perspective. And that perspective tends to be Eurocentric. So, for instance, if we, let's talk about the constellations. In the Northern Hemisphere, we have the Big Dipper, or Ursa Major, if you prefer. We have Cassiopeia, Cepheus. We have Draco, 
And they all come from this one historical context, largely Greek and, and Roman astronomy. And the Greek and Romans told great stories about these things. Now, as you travel through time, those constellations sort of get maintained through star maps in European courts. They became part of navigation and the oceans when we had first colonization in the Americas and then the slave trade. And they kept existing until the 20th century when the International Astronomical Union formed, which was great. That was a way of supporting astronomy worldwide, but at the time was essentially a bunch of white dudes from Europe. And they formed a committee to, let's simplify the night sky and we'll have 80 constellations. So they get together in a room and it's a British guy, it's a French guy, and it's a German guy. And, it's, and they dictate constellations and it's a bad joke. There are people around the world, whether it's in Asian countries and Asian regions, in the nor Northern Europe, Indigenous peoples, in the Americas, Indigenous peoples, who have, their, who have our own stories, our own constellations. But we don't see them anymore. If I open a textbook, I see Ursa Major. I do not see my constellations from Mimagi or, for, or Haudenosaunee constellations or constellations of Salish or Inuit constellations. That's erasing our stories, and that's colonialism. And then we have the future of colonialism, which is going to space. The way we do space exploration and space settlement is the exact same narrative that we did when, when Canada and the U.S. was being settled. The pioneer, the frontiersmanship, the man versus nature element. Can you um, tell us just a little bit about your own personal relationship with the night sky? You know, surely everybody has looked up and gotten fascinated. And then your own interest, your growing interest in indigenous astronomies and, and the history of those. Yeah, I'm Mi'kmaq from uh, Tatamaguk. Tatamaguk is the island of Newfoundland. I didn't, we didn't grow up in, in community because, you know, there's a lot of settlements. The Mi'kmaq were spread out across the island. So I grew up basically in suburbia, you know, watching Mr. Dress Up and much music. And, and so I didn't really have a strong connection with my heritage and where I come from. One of the best parts of Western Newfoundland, other than Gross Morn and, and skiing, is the clear night skies. Seeing the Milky Way and all the stars, meteor showers and and you, you know, you feel, you see this blanket of stars. It feels like home. And more recently, I'd never really thought about what it meant to be indigenous in astronomy and physics until, you know, I attended a national conference of national of Canadian astronomers in Winnipeg and a Cree astronomer who worked in, in communities across Manitoba. He stood on a podium and started telling us stories, you know, telling us the Cree stories of, of the bear and the hunters. Those the Cree story of three dogs. Those Cree stories of the sweat lodge. And I was just dumbfounded. I didn't know my own stories. I knew nothing about it. And why didn't I? I was teaching history of astronomy, teaching about Aristotle and Galileo and, and, and Copernicus and Ptolemy and Newton and every other white dude in the past thousand years. Where was the indigenous knowledges? That kind of inspired me as I'm getting older. You know, it's becoming more important to know where I come from. It's not just the stories anymore. It's indigenous methodologies. How do we do science? That's, and there's no one pan-indigenous knowledge system, but many indigenous peoples don't necessarily use the scientific method to understand the universe, but different other ways through long observation, through learning and time and oral transmission of stories and thinking about relationships and, and all these different possibilities. In my mind, all these different doors opened and it just felt like I was re rewiring my brain from the traditional Western science to maybe something else. I really began to fall into that kind of learning my own stories. And, and as today, I still don't know many Mi'kmaq stories other than one or two. And what would you say are some of the maybe more Western practices in science that are quite different from some of these indigenous ways of establishing knowledge? One of the most obvious is Western science, we have to be objective. How often do we see this thing uh, that if I have an experiment, you should be able to reproduce it from my notes verbatim, no matter what, and get the same result. That's not necessarily something many indigenous peoples do. Everything's about relationship. Where I am, 
what I observe, what I experiment. It's not going to be the same thing that what you do, what you see, what you observe, because we're different people. So I think that relationality is very important for understanding where we are and where we're going. And I think that's very much different between Indigenous and Western knowledge, that we have to have that objective idea where Indigenous peoples don't. The second one is partly its hierarchical nature. Mm -hmm. We tend to think of humans as the apex of nature and the world. So humans are above the animals, that are above the plants, that are above the bugs, that are above the dirt. And many Indigenous peoples don't see that. There are scholars who talk about the fact that we have treaties with salmon nation or bear nation or cedar nation, thinking about these other species as having rights to the land equal to our own, which for astronomy might not be obvious how that affects us. But, you know, if we think about environmental science and climate change, maybe we can see how that could be a very valuable perspective. One thing that I kind of think of when you're talking about this hierarchy is maybe a related problem of labeling things. I know I've heard you say that some of these indigenous stories, you don't label that as being a story about astronomy or a story about ethics or a story about hunting. It's a story about many things at the same time. It's part of understanding the cycles of connection that support us. For many indigenous peoples, that knowledge is in siloed. It's holistic. When we talk about knowledge, it can be used in so many different ways. When I tell a story of the stars, I'm not necessarily saying that that star is X or that star is a bear or that star is a bird. I'm just telling you about how it relates to us, whether the mo- how we observe the star with respect to seasons, how we talk about ourselves, how we learn, all part of our way of learning and gaining knowledge in a way that's kind of more narrative and less direct fact-based. I think that also helps us um, relate to these things and have a connection. When I mentioned you know, our constellations are colonized, Ursa Major is a bear with a tail. There's no way for us to relate to that. There are no bears or tails, but that's our constellation. So we have to sort of state it as a factuality. Whereas in Mi'kma'ki, we have a bear and seven bird hunters. Almost the same constellation as the Big Dipper. Now, the four stars of the bowl is Muin the bear. And it's called Muin because that's its name. It's, it's what the name it tells us because the sound is Muin, <laughs> which is why one reason why I love the Mi'kmaq language. Most of the names are very, very similar to, sound, to the sounds mm-hmm. that they make. And when we tell that story, we tell it at the same time every morning, a couple hours before dawn. I'm not a morning person, but you, know, you, you have to take my word on that. And that's because, you know, the Big Dipper goes around the North Pole every, every night. If we tell at the same time every morning, it goes around the North Celestial Pole once every year. And if we start in the spring, Muon is pointing downwards. And so when Muon wakes up from hibernation, you know, after so much sleep, Muon is hungry, like anyone would be. And, you know, emerges from a den, starts looking for food. When Robin spies Muon, Robin knows that Muon would feed the community for a long time. Its meat, its fat, its grease would help sustain everyone. First comes chickadee carrying a giant pot for cooking Muon. And we know this because chickadee and the pot are two different stars. They're very close to each other. Following chickadee is blue jay and gray jay and pasture and pigeon and barn owl and saw-wet owl. And, you know, the birds begin this hunt and they start chasing Muon. As we get into the summer, you know, the constellation is kind of flat. You know, Muon is running across the land and Robin is trying to keep up with his bow and arrow and chickadee's following, following behind but they're starting to lose the, lose the path and you know, Muon is starting to escape. And as we get towards fall, some of the birds have fallen away from the hunt because their stars are below the horizon at this time. But Muon is getting tired. So he stands on his hind legs and growls and Robin fires his bow and arrow, striking Muon in the heart. Blood goes everywhere, covering all the, the leaves red and covering Robin red as well. Robin flies into the trees, shaking the blood off, leaving one stain on his chest. 
Muon dies and passes into the spirit world. All the birds gather and begin celebrating. They've been cooking the meat. They, they tell their stories. They dance into the winter. And in the winter, Muon's in the sky on his back, waiting for the spring and to reemerge. This story tells us about, you know, the motions of the stars. It tells us about properties of some of these stars. It tells us about the seasons and how we relate to them, where we're telling the story in Mi'kma'ki, in this case, in would-be Nova Scotia. And it also tells us about ethics. Like, you don't hunt the bear in the spring and the summer because... You know, that's when it's, it's mating and having cubs. You hunt in the fall. And it tells us about community and that we share. It also honors our relationships with the birds. For instance, the pasture pigeon is now extinct, but it's still part of our story and our narrative. Mm-hmm. So we, we honor the birds in that respect. And so there's so many different elements of science in here. It's not just a pure model of a star. It's part of how we relate to it. And do you have a sense of how long it took for that story to evolve into the form that you just shared with us? This story, in many respects, was rediscovered. Maybe about 10 or 20 years ago now, elders in Nova Scotia and researchers from Key Brighton University came together and sort of rebuilt and reconstructed the story. Versions of the story existed, but because of colonization, so many elements of stories and knowledge were lost. And I think we've been rebuilding our stories and reconnecting and rediscovering them at the same time. But also, the story can be as old as time immemorial. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't know if there's what the beginning of the story is. There's evidence, there are stories that are probably tens of thousands of years old. I think it's so easy in that respect for us to forget that indigenous peoples have been here for tens of thousands of years, have had knowledges and societies and sophisticated understand relationships with nature and each other and other First Nations and around North America in ways that we tend to forget. And also remembering that there's not just one way to, to learn about the universe. There's many indigenous ways, different groupings, and that Thinking about the universe in different ways means we can probably come up with new discoveries. You know, Western science has been a fantastic way to understand medicine, nature, the universe, and so on. Indigenous knowledges are just are so helpful and so much doing it another fantastic way and equal as equal partners. And we brought them both together equally. We can do so much great science. You wrote um, that doing this, looking into this work in indigenous astronomies that has made you a better scientist. Can you speak to that in, in terms of, as a professional scientist, how has it enhanced your approach? I think first and foremost, one of the hardest things for scientists trained in the Western system to do is to understand their biases and where we come from. Undergrad, PhD, 10 years, where you're doing nothing, almost nothing but Western science. And so you become sort of embedded in it the fish in the ocean, not knowing there's water kind of a problem. And I think relearning a lot of these indigenous knowledge things help, has helped me see a lot of the biases, mm-hmm. a lot of our assumptions, how they're not all that good. We tend to think of astronomy as this benevolent science that we're learning about the universe for the betterment of all humanity. But we're doing so by building telescopes on indigenous lands. We're doing so using facilities on indigenous lands. We're funding it using money raised in various ways on indigenous lands. And I think we need to recognize that obligation that comes with that. And it's not, not obvious that we always do. So I think it's helped me made, become a better scientist because it's kind of reminding me about the humanity of doing astronomy, that it is a human endeavor. And we, as humans, whatever biases humanity has is going to come out in our science in that respect. And we need to do better, whether it's dealing with issues around racism and sexism or anti-indigenism and so on. We need to do better. Thing you've said too is that you know maybe in Western science we tend to think one way, which leads to a certain set of decisions, and with indigenous knowledge, 
we would come to a different decision. But maybe really the solution forward is having a conversation all together. Um, I think this maybe speaks to a concept I've heard you talk about, which is two-eyed seeing. Can you, can you talk about what that means? So two-eyed seeing is a concept that was developed um, by elders Albert and Merdina Marshall out of Eastern Canada. They brought it to science with this idea with, as I'm wearing glasses, it's very easy to see, that if you look through one lens, that's Western science. And looking through one lens, you do really great science because it creates a clear picture with various understanding. And the other lens is indigenous knowledges. You can learn about nature and our place and do great things that way. If you bring them together as equal partners, listen to each other and work together, we get a deeper, more fuller picture of nature and society. And that's the basic premise of 2 seeing is just bringing them together as equal partners to work together. You know, it's very commonly applied to like uh, environmental sciences, more so than astronomy. But, you know, in terms of learning about things like stellar physics and exoplanets and life in the universe, including indigenous knowledges and having that as an equal partner means we can think more broadly. Whereas if we're doing it from a Western scientist, we're just a science perspective, we're simply going to look for various chemical elements that we understand, like oxygen, or we're going to look for things that are signs of RNA and DNA. And, and we're going to go from this very prescribed Western scientific method. But together we can do, I think the two of them together do much better and much uh, fuller science. And in addition to maybe challenging the way we present history or different topics, we also have to challenge our actual scientific process. And that just seems like such a difficult and fundamental thing to change because I think so many of us don't even know how to define the process that we follow. So how do we do that? How do we start challenging our scientific process or even understanding what assumptions we're making? Another very easy question. I'm <laughs> um, it's hard. Uh, and we're so trained in a certain way of doing science. And we tend to like to talk about it as a scientific method where we have a see something and then we hypothesize something and then we have an experiment and we have to falsify and always be falsifying. It's important to recognize that that's one way of doing science. But even when we're doing science in our classrooms, we're writing on chalkboards or typing on our computers, we might not be using the scientific method in the same way. And we might not even notice. So, you know, I think taking the time to reflect on what we're doing is one step. Perhaps the most important what we need to do is to sort of seed some of our authority as scientists. There are elders and knowledge keepers across Turtle Island in North America and the Americas who have a great understanding of science and nature from where they are at to where they're going and so on. And we need to spend more time listening and supporting them. And I think that would go a long way into helping us be better scientists and see the assumptions we're making. As a scientist, that's hard. You know, we're not used to uh, being quiet and listening. Hilding Nielsen is a Mi'kmaq astrophysicist at Memorial University in St. John's. That interview was part of the Conversations at the Perimeter podcast produced by the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. This episode was produced by Chris Wadskow. Special thanks to Mike Brown, Lauren Hayward, and Colin Hunter at the Perimeter Institute. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.